0: Welcome to Unspoken Unsound, a podcast that celebrates the lives and legacies of people we may pass on the street every day, unaware of their extraordinary experiences and accomplishments. It's a celebration of their lives and of humanity itself. In conversations with people in my life who have significant military experience, on the subject of the influence various military ranks wield, one rank has been described in raw terms. That rank is Sergeant Major, and the term I've often heard about Sergeant Major is badass. My conversation with retired Sergeant Major Reg Owens presented me with my first opportunity to explore what the formal and informal weight of leadership looks like in one man's life. To some degree, I was expecting a highly decorated Marine Sergeant Major to project an intimidating aura, you know, badass. Reg Owens did not. I learned nearly as much from what Reg didn't say as I did from what he actually said. What stood out in my mind was the elegant balance of confidence and humility Reg projects. He knows who he is and what he's accomplished. He doesn't deny his accomplishments but he clearly has no need for attention or praise. He doesn't boast. He doesn't complain. Reg Owen's story is that of a young man raised in the projects of Buffalo, New York who enlisted as a Marine at the age of 18 and 30 years later retired a decorated sergeant major having served three combat tours in Vietnam with elite Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company units. He went on to a second career in academia, dovetailed with tireless volunteer social service. Here's my conversation with Reg Owens. Reg Owens, welcome to unspoken unsung. Thanks for joining us today. My delight. Absolutely. So you're the only person I've ever gotten to have a conversation with who held the rank of Sergeant major. That rank uh, brings with it, I understand, enormous respect and authority. And I know I'm only scratching the surface, but I'd like to share a, a little bit about what I've learned about the rank and get your perspective on that. Okay. One of the things I learned is that other than the singular person holding the rank of Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps, the rank you held is the highest rank possible for enlisted personnel. And in in today's Marine Corps, I understand there's something like 420 people who hold the rank of Sergeant Major, which is less than three-tenths of one percent of all active enlisted personnel. So it's clearly a rare honor and a duty to achieve uh, Sergeant Major rank. I'm going to steal a quote here, too. The primary and foremost requisite for sergeant's major is outstanding leadership, combined with an exceptionally high degree of professional competence and the ability to act independently as the principal enlisted advisor to marine commanders. I also understand that it takes about 20 years of exemplary service to make the rank of sergeant major, and If I'm not mistaken, that's roughly the same time frame as someone who uh, Who joined as an officer takes to make colonel? So uh, and and I understand it also takes uh, to be promoted to sergeant-major It takes uh, being selected you have to undergo a review by a special selection committee So what does it really mean to be a sergeant-major in the Marine Corps? Oh it
1: means having achieved uh, one of the, one of the greatest achievements of my life was to become a sergeant major in the marine, sergeant major in the marine corps um, there are other ranks that um uh, in route to sergeant major in the marine corps and you have the option as as a e9 i don't know if you studied the rank structure right. pathway but e7 is where you make a decision to go uh, for the the gusto, I would call it, and that is you would go command. In other words, the next rank after E7 is E8, which is first sergeant. And mm-hmm. that is denoted with a diamond in the middle of uh, six stripes, uh, three up and three down. Okay, And then from there, and spending considerable time in a command position, because you are the senior enlisted person in a Company or battalion, or sometimes a battalion, if the sergeant major is not there, but certainly in a company. And from there, after spending uh, multiple uh, months and times in, in different various organizations, say from artillery to uh, communications to a grunt organization, a grunt company, uh, that is one of the I would say one of the best things you want to get done under your belt It's like uh, getting your ticket punched. uh, So you can command at a a level of uh, intelligence you might say uh, in the areas where it's not grunt laden. Uh, Say for instance uh, those folks in the air wing, they are not grunts per se. Uh, They are highly skilled uh, persons to handle aircraft maintenance and etc. Uh, whereas a grunt, you, you get your water, your, your canteen, uh, you get your rifle and, and you're off and running and you're up and down the hills and etc. So it doesn't take a lot of gray matter there. It's a lot <laughs> of brawn. Uh, you have to know tactics, how to to move, uh, and sometimes silently, sometimes in uh, mass, etc. to the objective. And that's on a company level, and you're amassed on a, a battalion level, which you'll have more companies in the assault, you might say. Uh, the assault, uh, certainly uh, the, using the uh, uh, two in the assault and one back or one reserve, so three companies in the attack and one in reserve uh, to uh, shoulder up uh, any of the, uh, the forward companies that may uh, sustain casualties etc and to uh, resupply resupply is very very important and from that rank uh, as a first sergeant and it is primarily in many cases administrative because uh, all of all of marines are human and they have human errors human problems etc uh, the social problems uh, how do you get along with your comrades uh, what's your family life like, uh, are you experiencing financial difficulties, uh, educational growth problems, uh, can you re, uh, receive the concept of what we're doing here when we talk about key team concept, and can you work with others? And that is primarily what you have to, in fact, do. It's a team effort. You build that camaraderie so that, uh, yeah, you know. you. You work together to achieve the objective, to overrun the objective in many cases, and then to set up. Uh, well, that, that kind of brings to mind, you know, how you, you see all these
0: movies where, you know, in, in say like combat settings, you get, you get like a green lieutenant with some battle-hardened sergeant that really is in effect, you know, teaching and training and supporting that lieutenant. It, I get the sense that, uh, you know, from what you just said, that the experience of actually being with the enlisted ranks, you know, there might be kind of a separation or a lack of understanding between an officer who's been an officer from day one, uh, you know, trying to really grasp what it's like and what the experience is for the enlisted people that that person
1: commands. Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. Certainly uh, in route to uh, uh, higher ranks as an officer uh, it is wise to go to the folks who have the experience to gain more experience for your advancement and if you don't pay attention to that uh, you're going to really suffer unfortunately uh, that's the way it is so you learn from your your senior enlisted folks and of course um, in many cases um, Particularly in Vietnam, the, some of the senior enlisted folks just weren't there because of casualties. And yes, you're right. It, it sometimes is down to a sergeant or a corporal to take over. And Marines are trained in that way. To uh, you know, if I'm the highest-ranking person, it, it's my command. I need to get get it done at this point. And you take over. And uh, everyone else beneath that rank uh, is aligned with that thought as well. And so we ha- don't have any disparity in, 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 uh, in succession or, or uh, authority. It's yeah. already there. It's drilled into you.
0: I get the sense that rising through the enlisted ranks can be uh, perhaps more arduous than it is for a graduate of, say, the Naval Academy or Officer Candidate School. Is there any truth to that?
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> there's, there's no doubt about that, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, if you're enlisted, uh, yeah, you go through in the Marine Corps particularly, There's there, were, there still are two boot camps, uh, one in Parris Island, South Carolina, and the other one in San Diego, uh, uh, Marine Corps Recruit Depot, uh, San Diego. And the difference is uh, certainly in Parris Island, you're Ah, those those mosquitoes and the sand fleas, uh, I hate them today because of that, really. Um, Boot camp is, is, uh, and as we get into this, I'll come back to that because I think it's the making of the individual. It is, we strip you clean. You're down to, you know, there's just no hair on the body once you start. And then we let you grow. And we, you grow in the manner that we want you to grow as a Marine. And that that's something that you will carry with you the rest of your life.
0: Yeah. So speaking of arduous service, the list of decorations and honors awarded to you is a testament to your service. And if I may, I'll just touch on that a bit. You're the recipient of the Purple Heart, bronze star with a combat V for valor. Navy Commendation Medal with a Combat V, that's a Valor designation, is it not? Yes, that's correct. You received the Meritorious Service Medal, the Air Medal with Flight Strike Award, and you also received the Republic of Vietnam Cross of Gallantry Medal with Gold Star, among other honors that you got. So amazing. If I may, too, let's let's pause there and go further back. You were born and raised in Buffalo, New York, correct? Absolutely. At the Niagara Frontiers, I like to refer to this. <laughs> How far back does your family's history in New
1: York go? Mm. Huh, let's see. I'm not sure when my mother got to Buffalo. Um, but it was in the early 40s, I believe. Mm-hmm. I, I, well, it had to be earlier than that, uh, I'd say uh, in the late, mid, mid-30s, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. What was your childhood like in Buffalo? Uh, let's see, I like to begin, I get occasionally speaking engagements and things, and I always like to begin with, you know, I'm a product of a public school, public housing, and uh, more recently a product of the Marine Corps. So. I came up in a, uh, I say uh, in public housing obviously, that uh, gives you a mark, but right after World War II, uh, we lived in the projects, public housing, Uh, we were not on uh, any particular dole or anything, Uh, there were five of us in my mother's house, uh, and then I had a stepdad eventually, my mother married uh, Mr. Johnson. And uh, they live uh, together for hmm, till they both expired uh, many years later. Uh, growing up in Buffalo was a, uh, eh, it was a, it was, it was an adventure. It was cold. It was a, uh, uh, a urban area. And one got to think about, uh, you know, what's beyond the threshold or the, the borders of uh, city life and et cetera. And uh, I got an opportunity to do that, and I always thought to do that, to to, uh, travel the world, to see what was beyond uh, the confines of uh, my environment. And uh, that was uh, pretty much spurred by what I was able to view uh, on TV, as uh, was written in many cases. Uh, I was an ardent student um, and uh, did a lot of reading. And I said, God, there's got to be something beyond where I'm at right now. And I Mm -hmm. want to see it. And that kind of prompted my uh, going into the Marine Corps. Uh, Of course, that was laced with some decisions that were not mine, but uh, certainly uh, of the environment and the the job market. Uh, When I graduated from high school, there simply were no jobs to to get, certainly at uh, my young age. So, you were 18 when you first enlisted? Absolutely, yeah, just about 18. So, and your motivation had to do with that job market mostly? It was indeed. Uh, I couldn't find a job. I, I was uh, enrolled in a, a school of some type, uh, you know, right into high school, tried it, uh, uh, it. I was a pretty good art student, so I went to this art place. But I didn't have enough capital to carry on, and so. Uh, after a couple of days of uh, job hunting, which I went to do on a daily basis, into the uh, the peripheral of Buffalo in the suburbs where they had the steel plants, the uh, the grain milleries, and et cetera, and uh, went from door to door asking, uh, hey, you want to hire me? You know, and a complete application, and they tell me, go out that door, and that door led to a <laughs> bus stop. <laughs> Nobody's going to hire me. So a friend of mine he and I both had uh, I, I tell you, graduating from high school in itself was an achievement. Uh, my best friend and I, we were so glad and just going back to grade school, we were so glad to get out of grade school that we had we had class ring made. Wow. Yeah, you can get that. I mean, I, we had a little hustling jobs and things like that. But we were so proud just to get out of grade school that we had a grade school ring made, you know. Wow. Yeah, public school 31. And uh, God, uh, he's passed on now, but uh, he and I both had that ring. And it just meant so much to us just to achieve that level of education. Uh, And, of course, the the next step was always to uh, go to high school, which was touted... uh, to and from, as I was coming home from my graduate grade school graduation, eighth grade, uh, all the neighbors would lined up along the route home from school, and they were saying, you gotta get that high school education now, Reg. He says, you gotta keep going, keep going. Oh, that's so good. Well, and then I, I kind of surmised at that point, he said, from the point of where I, I first got that message of continued education, to the point where I got back home and I just put it all together. And I says, hmm, you know, that's coming from my parents and my grandparents. And to study volume, get your education, at least finish high school, you know. Hmm. Finish high school, and I says, now, these folks didn't even know my, my mother or my grandmother. And they said it, and so their message, the commonality of the message in itself To me, it just rang true, I guess, of all these old folks who don't even know and they have the same message. There's got to be something in it. And Mm -hmm. that moved me on into high school, absolutely. So, was it your
0: intention to make the Marine Corps a full, like a life's career?
1: (laughs) Heck no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I have a feeling.
1: No, in fact, uh, as my failed attempt to get a job, uh, Paul Macklin where he and I were classmates, and we, we, uh, we haunted the suburbs uh, for jobs, and we would get up every morning and uh, pack a sad peanut butter jelly sandwich, and uh, and we would put on our tie and short sleeve white shirt, and and we go out and present ourselves to possible employers, and each time the answer was no, so in the route uh, we would come back uh, after. Uh, taking the public transportation back into the city itself. And then route back to, uh, the projects, uh, we ran into a Marine. We just passed the, the post office in downtown Buffalo. And, uh, this guy says, Hey, what are you guys doing there? And I said, Oh, we're just going back home there. And he says, well, come on in there. Think about the, uh, what you might want to do here. And lo and behold, it was was a Marine. I had no idea that uh, uh, the... I knew there were different branches of the service, but I didn't know what they all entailed. Obviously, the Navy was the Navy. Um, My stepfather was an Army uh, guy. He served in World War II in Europe. So I knew about the Army, but I had no inkling about the Marine Corps. Of course, I'd seen some Audie Murphy movies and things like that, but it's still Just didn't dawn on me about the Marine Corps, and so he presented a good story. (laughs) "Hmm, No job, Hmm, an opportunity to do a little travel. I'm in. Uh, Reported back for my physical, and I was able to pass the physical, which I got to tell you, uh, most a lot of folks are not able to get into the service uh, simply because they're not physically fit to, in fact, do so. Well, actually, you're talking to one of those. I
0: I took my draft physical at the height of the Vietnam War, and I failed it. Yeah. Bad
1: hearing. Yeah, bad hearing. And you can be eliminated for a number of reasons. Uh, and they, they all don't say you're a bad person. Just simply says, well, we want someone who's a little fitter. Now, had uh, things gotten really bad, uh, you'd have probably been drafted anyway with or without your impediment
0: well i was i, w- I took my physical in uh, at fort de in hawaii mm-hmm. and a friend of mine took his in la he was completely deaf in one ear and he ended up being a gunner on a dust off chopper
1: yep <laughs> you see what i'm saying Yep. Yeah. Yeah, depends yeah. on uh, what the recruiters sometimes i won't say they're unscrupulous or anything but they do have a quota to make <laughs> and uh and sometimes they overlook some of the uh, things which might eliminate you. But no, nevertheless, uh, uh, you've got to be pretty fit to come in to begin with, because the training as you, you eventually reach boot camp, oh, that was a trip to, uh, from Buffalo to South Carolina. Oh, cultural shock, cultural shock, totally. Oh, yeah. and, but, but getting there and then surviving boot camp, uh, the arduous training that you go through there, as I said, you strip stripped down and just just shaved and cleaned and you just start all over again as a human. And uh, the DIs will whip you into shape so that you do become that instrument that they want you to be. So what were your first impressions and thoughts when you took that oath and entered boot camp? I had no inkling of... Uh, I knew... Get this, this is really something... I didn't know that it was going to be such arduous and physical demanding training. I simply didn't know. Um, I played football, ran track, did swimming and all that sort of stuff in high school. But uh, I, I just felt I was healthy enough to do it, in fact, uh, past the physical. But uh, the the mental the mental breakdown where they actually just attack you simply, well, I put it in the terms of attack, uh, you simply because you're human, and that you're not the human that they are, having, having become Marines themselves. And so you're less than human, and they want to mold you into that person that you can walk alongside them and say, you're a Marine. i like to describe it. It's one of the longest job interviews that you're going to ever have. <laughs> hadn't thought of it in those terms yeah and so when when you uh it's it, you, you're paid you, you get fed uh, you get a place to sleep there's shelter and there's there's no no real love or anything uh pat you on the back and etc but uh it requires you to be at full attention and then to absorb as much as you possibly can both mentally and physically and uh, put your brain to work as well and so once you you uh graduate, you are then called Marine. Up until that point, you're not a Marine, you're a recruit. Again, it is a long job interview, a tough
0: The period uh, in which you joined the Marines, really in the decade that followed were times of social upheaval. How was that upheaval felt in
1: the U.S. Marines back then? Well, the Marine Corps likes to say that uh, we're all one color. Um, uh, green, and um, it, it's not true per se. Uh, uh, there's a little joke he says, he says: "We're all green Marines. That's what the DI or one of the senior enlisted persons would say. We're all green. There's no color in the rank. Or we're all green." And so "By the way, you just you dark green Marines go over there, <laughs> you know." <laughs> so yeah, it was there. In fact. Um, in retrospect and having looked at that period of social unheaval which uh, still plagues us today unfortunately uh, there's some gains and et cetera but uh, we got a mighty long way to go the uh, the, this, the I was it was never directly at me but I did have some uh, encounters uh, one of the DI's would say to Paul Paul and I both underwent this uh, uh, embarrassing moment with the DI we get in our face. There's a a movie called Nose to Toes, Nose and Toes. The DI would get with you in front of you, his nose touching your nose and his toes touching your toes. And he would scream all kinds of um, embarrassing words and phrases to you uh, designed to... Injure your feelings and and hurt and and just to tear you down, and and certainly they had enough ammunition with the uh, the movements of uh, Martin Luther King and etc. and uh, they were just horrible in that regard. Hmm. And so yeah, there was some direct confrontation. Uh, traveling through the South to get to South Carolina was a uh, It was an interesting trip, absolutely, because it had not, uh, although, yes, it was bias and prejudice and et cetera, and segregation, even in a northern city such as Buffalo, but not to the extent where it was open as it was when I traveled south. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a
0: common military acronym I'd like to explain for our listeners. It's uh, MOS, which stands for Military Occupation Specialty. Yes. Since since you enlisted,
1: were you able to choose your MOS? Oh, by no means. <laughs> uh, that recruiter I told you about—the guy in the pretty green outfit, blue dress, blue trousers, and uh, the red stripe—and etc uh, <laughs> If you go to a recruiting station, the uniform stands out. It's really, really something else. Again, I, I did not have a, a clear indication of what the Marine did, and etcetera, and. Uh, how it actually all worked I know that uh, uh, I figured I figured you got paid something but I didn't know what and <laughs> I, uh, I, I uh, just just was glad to eat and you know get through the training I, 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 I had some discipline per se uh, you know if you play team sports there is that concept which is there with me that was there with me and so I said, well, there's got to be an end to this, you know, and and if get this now and my mental capacity was if the DI got through it, the drill instructor got through it, I can get through this. He's Mm -hmm. no better than I am physically. I can manage this and that's what took me through. You just weren't going to wash me out and that was my, I was fortified in that regard and tenacious. You take a battery of tests before you come into the Marine Corps. Uh, AFT is uh, I think. Yeah. It's your it's your quotient score, and uh, that score determines what MOS you go into. Mm. And if you score high enough, like I think at the time it was 120, uh, you were considered uh, intelligent enough or smart enough to. An officer that I think that marks the demarcation line of uh, I'll just say an intelligence test. And at that one, uh, if it's 120, then they will you get through boot camp, they will eventually send you over, try to get you go over to become an officer. Uh, I didn't meet that mark at the time, I was like 117 or something like that, but uh, it was all right. I didn't met, ma- didn't. At that point, it didn't matter much to me, and this was, after a while, kind of fun for me, because I was able to do the, all of the physical required things, and uh, with fun, I I got to enjoy boot camp. Believe it or not, you know, after a while, because I could do the things that were required, and I did them with relish. Now the MOS now. Again, the, the, you're, you're tested, and so um, they they will ask you as a, huh, I'd like to say as a courtesy, and they're you know, <laughs> yeah, you can ask all you want, but guess what? <laughs> it's determined by that score you you receive.
0: You serve first on a radar beacon team. What does the
1: the radar beacon team do? Well, a was gunfire. Uh, let me just put it this way. Uh, my job was to deliver fire from naval vessels onto the enemy targets, targets found by uh, uh, op- targets of opportunity, or uh, or targets that have been designated as um, uh, a a, uh, a detriment to the advancement of the troops, uh, and, and so I would be on point in, in advance of the lead element. Of a, an assault, and I would uh, bring naval gunfire onto targets that would impede our our progress, and that would be ships uh, at sea. They would fire a five-inch thirty-eight caliber weapon onto targets as, and I would adjust those rounds as they came upon the target, and i drop left, right, and center until and uh, the initial salvos were actually on target and then i'd say okay fire for effect and then we would fire four guns two salvos etc until we made the determination that the target was indeed uh, neutralized or destroyed
0: is that kind of the marine equivalent of being an army ranger uh, long range reconnaissance patrol
1: no that's, that's a little different. Um, the, the teams that, the, the radar beacon teams and the, the shore fire control party teams, um, they were single entity. So in some cases, uh, as a team, they would go to a lead battalion or, and deliver what is called controlled fire upon targets. Obviously there's more than just one type of, uh, armament that can be delivered on a target. And uh, you would go through a, what's called a, a I'll make it simple a, a clearing house as to who's in the area and what kind of fire we want to deliver on that target. You can do air, you can do uh, artillery, or you can do uh, naval gunfire, or you can do uh, just plain old ground weapons, mortars, and etc. You know, rifle fire, mm. and that is determined at the CP or or a, a command operations center, a fire a fire direction center, and artillery, and then uh, that is a, a, a harnessed with other types of fire you may want on that target as well, and then it is delivered. And my job was to get out there, radio back what I saw or from the intelligence of the advancing troops where they needed fire, uh, if they were under fire. And I would uh, deliver the fire to uh, interdict and uh, in many cases to destroy the enemy that uh, was threatening the advancement. So you you deployed to Vietnam three, you had three tours? Oh, yeah. Uh, actually, in the unit I was in, which is a very specialized unit, it was called Anglico, and mm-hmm. Air and Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. And uh, the, uh, the need for naval gunfire. Uh, well, let's see. Let's go back to World War II. Generally, when they would uh, uh, storm the beach in an amphibious landing, uh, someone had to uh, direct the, the rounds or the the batteries and the uh, bombardments on the shore, and so there was an advanced team that went out to in fact do that. And it was with radar, so the radar beacon was a, a beam that went back to the ship, and it gave a a a second point of uh, reference, uh, kind of like in triangulation. If you know two points, you can find a third point, and that's what we, the radar beacon would do. It would give a study big be- uh, uh, a study reference point from where we were, and a high point on shore. And uh, from the ship would know its position and of course, it would know the beacons position and then the third uh, point would be the actual target. So, um,
0: what what rank did you hold when you first deployed to Vietnam?
1: Oh, I was a sergeant. Mm-hmm. That, that's a, a sergeant E-5 if I will. Yeah, that's a... Uh,
0: Anglico... Was that a special forces
1: unit? Special forces re- re- refers to army. Uh, oh, does it? Okay. Forces. Uh, the Marine Corps doesn't have a special forces. They have a uh, what's called a force recon or a recon outfit, a reconnaissance. It is a uh, kind of like a super grunt, like a, a seal, but not as trained as the seal. Uh, recon folks. They swim. They dive. They jump, and etc. Yes. Uh, and it's a uh, pretty compatible but not quite the same uh, in intensity and etc. Uh, there's moves towards that now. Uh, at the time uh, I was in the Recon was uh, the Super Grunt. And uh, you, you went out there and you, you played in the woods. You did all kinds of things. to hide and slide. And uh, and uh, you you were the advance. You were the the folks who were dropped in behind the enemy lines and the settler to in an operation or so. And that's how that worked out. Uh Anglico is a a a group of communicators and uh naval gunfire folks and air. Okay, that air and naval gunfire air. Um because we could deliver air, we could bring in the Hewitt, we could bring in the uh, any gunship, we could bring in the, the Zunis, we could bring in uh, the F-8s and etc., all the jet fighters and etc., to bear on target as well. So that we, we had what's called the FAC, Forward Air Control Unit with us as well and of course that was coordinated uh, fire as well as any artillery or naval gunfire delivered on any target mm-hmm. You certainly didn't want an airplane flying around, a friendly airplane flying around when you're firing artillery or naval gunfire upon a designated target. Uh, You can take out your own people. You didn't want to do that. So it has to be a a no-fly zone. We could uh, do coordinated uh, firing. Uh, Of course, we could uh, say, okay, uh, we'll do so much naval gunfire, so much artillery, and then uh, we'll lift the... uh, the air restrictions and will allow the airplanes to come in and do their job that's some pretty heavy responsibility it is and it's all coordinated in what it's called the uh uh, the forward the command centers would control it not only control the say the marine corps uh, uh, armament but uh, any uh, of our ally forces as well
0: well, needless to say, the enemy would obviously be strongly invested wanting to take you out.
1: Well, yeah, they want to know who was who, who was bringing, uh, we'll use the term, who's bringing pee on me, okay? <laughs> and uh, that uh, uh, was one of the things that you always had to be concerned about, uh, your position, where were we you? Now, I've, I've done both. I've done it from the air and from the ground in other words when the uh, the attack company went out or attack battalion um of course we went with the lead company to uh, again uh, uh sometimes uh, you you recon or you advance by fire uh just go ahead and pick out the target and then uh, bombard it and that's you when know, i with the grunt unit leading the uh the attack per se and that's what we would do. So we would we would soften it up with artillery or naval gunfire or air or all three. And then the troops would advance into the objective. Hmm. Uh, who was, uh, we, we called what I did, naval gunfire It's called spotting. Uh, we would spot uh, rounds and uh, the FAC would, of course, uh, just bring it on target as well, artillery. Now, artillery was called uh, forward, uh, the, the FOing, forward observer period. And from the air, it was uh, air observer. And I've been in all those positions.
0: Now, when you were with Anglico, didn't some of Anglico's work take place from spotter
1: planes as well? Well, that's correct. Yes, that's what I'm saying. The FO, uh, your oh, forward okay. observer. So, you would fly... Uh, in the uh, what's called a tactical uh, area of operation and you would look for targets of opportunity or the intelligence that you did have once you went up, you would uh, go take a look see at and see if it's worthy of a a continued bombardment or if it's neutralized or, or any activity or targets of opportunity certainly.
0: So, obviously, that's where you earned the Air Medal with the Flight Strike Award. Yes. Yeah. Now, there had to be both blessings and curses to either air or ground operations, I would assume, like, you know, in terms of your own personal well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what what would those be? Did you well, have a preference for being in the air? I'm I'm sorry, what was it? Did you have a preference for op- for missions in the air?
1: a preference for missions in other
0: words being on the ground or in the air i would assume you know that well
1: uh, i don't know how to quite answer that but uh, there is
0: (laughs) that's obviously a a civilian question there
1: (laughs) What's your choice of poison? That's what you're asking. That's, that's exactly what <laughs> right. uh, there, There's vulnerabilities in, in each one of them, uh, some even more pronounced. Of course, if you're underground, you, you can only run so fast. Uh, if you fall from the air, you're, you can fall <laughs> much faster, believe you me. Uh, and so, uh, the type of aircraft uh, is without armament, per se. Uh, there's, you know, the skin of the aircraft is about as fragile as your skin. Wow. It, it just isn't a lot of skin there, and you can, if you come down and take a look, see, and you, you the, again, that uh, vulnerability is there, but you, you had to indeed to make a, an assessment of did you do any damage to the target, and how, in fact, would you make that determination? Well, you have to get a little closer, mm-hmm. and that, that means you got to come down, you know, and so I had good pilots, and they were. They were courageous and uh, they too were anxious to see uh, what happened to the target after the delivery of fire. And, uh, we had to make the assessment so that, yeah, uh, it would go back to headquarters and it would go into the computer mix and etc. So we could make a determination as to, uh, shall we continue to march on this or can we bypass this or is this uh, safe ground to send a battalion through. Can we indeed hold this? And all kinds of determination are made. But uh, our job was just get out there and uh, put some uh, rounds on the target, really.
0: You mentioned how profoundly boot camp shapes a man's spirit and character. uh, It's often said combat, likewise, does the same thing. What's what's your perspective
1: on that? Oh, absolutely. Let me just give you a... uh, An example of that, Uh, last time I was in Vietnam in 1972 uh, I was uh, running a TLC and uh, I was doing uh, air operations as well in which I uh, uh, would fly missions, uh, air observing missions. And um, I had a friend of mine who left Hawaii, we left Hawaii together in 65 with Anglican And uh, we married up again uh, in Vietnam in 72. Now, Vietnam is three, uh, there are four core areas of Vietnam. And uh, he was flying in a a northern core area as I was flying in one to an adjacent, what they call tactical area of operation. And so we would, he would fly one area and I would fly another area. It's kind of like, uh, you know, birds have a, uh, a designated territory that they circle, uh, uh, birds of prey. Okay, and, and so you just don't overlap into that either. Plus, other operations are going on, other ground operations, but uh, you're assigned to this one area. Uh, he was fired. I think Bill Thomas? He was uh, fired upon and uh, and hit, and he and the pilot went down. And he was subsequently uh, captured. Uh, I was flying in the TLR adjacent to his, and we received some flag from the ground, but not to the point where it destroyed the aircraft, but we went on in. And uh, it wasn't much later until I found out that uh, he was captured. And uh, uh, I, I didn't know, I knew he was captured, and then I left Vietnam come back to the States in 72. And I was in, uh, I had made first sergeant, I was a gunny at the time in Vietnam and I made first sergeant. Uh, That's where you have to make the determination, do you go to become a first sergeant, command, or do you stay uh, and become a master sergeant and stay with the unit? Well, I chose to go at first sergeant because I would have all the companies. All of the commands under me. And so as you move up in the ranks of Sergeant Major, that is multiplied as well. If you remain a Master Sergeant, Master Gunnery Sergeant, uh, you don't have a command of the, of the number of troops that I would have uh, as a First Sergeant or Sergeant Major. So I went for the gusto, I went for the big one. So uh, I came back and uh, I made the First Sergeant, and at that time, my MOS of um, uh, naval gunfire is revoked at that point. You become a first sergeant, period, straight away, and you're given a billet as a first sergeant. So, subsequently, I was not returned to Vietnam, but I took over an artillery unit in uh, Camp Pendleton up in Los Pogas. And uh, uh, I was at my desk one day in the capacity of a the battery first sergeant. And the regimental commander comes in, which is a full-bird colonel, and that's not normal uh, directions. The, 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 the regimental CO just simply does not come down to the battery. And with him were two guys in suits, and hmm, I said, hmm, oh, colonel, and he said, Reg, and he and I had known each other from Vietnam and, and lower ranks. we kind of like came up together So we had we had more than a fancy uh uh we knew each other but we certainly retained our respect and et cetera. But he came and said, hey Rajiz General, I want to talk to you. I think you need to go with him. And I'm saying, sort of, whoa, I need to go with these guys. Who are they? He said, well, go with them. <laughs> I said, okay, Colonel, you say so. So we left the Pogus area. I don't know if you're familiar with the base, there's an area called Pogus, Los Pogas, that's where the artillery is, to the Naval Hospital several miles away uh, and in route I, I kept prodding and asking, where are we going, what are we going to do, and etc. And uh, in the back of my mind I'm thinking, what did I do so wrong that these guys, who just, my old New York trainee came in, you know, these guys are in suits, they're, they're police, <laughs> there's law enforcement there's just no other way around that and lo and behold they take us to the hospital and i noticed that the uh, the gates to the hospital which are normally manded by uh, naval personnel naval hospital was mandated by army mps said, what the heck is going on here and this was uh, uh carried on as a went further into the, the territory of the naval hospital and we got to the, the front steps and we go in and uh we go through multiple doors and that's and finally through swinging doors there's bill thomas bill thomas who was a pow was there and he and i uh of course being friends from a long time ago uh we just kind of hugged and kissed and and then we sat down and chatted and drank a case of Budweiser. But uh, it was uh, quite the, uh, the reunion, you might say. As it turned out, all POWs uh, from Vietnam after the, uh, uh, the truce came back. And uh, all POWs, regardless of service, uh, they were, uh, uh, let's see, uh, what's a good term here for you guys? Uh, They had to undergo uh, hospitalization, obviously, for medical uh, evaluations. And then uh, they had to be uh, drained of any intelligence that they may have had. And so, I won't say it's an interrogation, but they want to get as much intelligence as they possibly can from you. And he was there for both those reasons, uh, for the health reasons and for the uh, intelligence that he may share with that task in mind he was there and he he didn't know anyone at camp pendleton except me and uh that's where the colonel came in these two guys in the in the coats in the suits came in they delivered me to thomas and we had a real great chat and one of the things i asked thomas because i had expected him to be initiated and uh, scurvy ridden and skin and bones and, you know, uh, blotchy complexion and etc. But he was like I saw him uh, two days ago. (laughs) How did you maintain this? He said, well, he says, Reg, I ate everything they gave me. And I did push-ups. And, you know, I was segregated from everyone. Uh, All prisoners are uh, segregated. Uh, They don't want you talking to each other. They don't want you to come to each other. And so he says, that's all I could do. And he says, I reverted back to my boot camp training, and he said, with that mentality, I was able to take being a POW. And as I said earlier, before being a POW or going through boot camp is certainly one thing that uh, instills in you uh, that uh, there's a toughness in you, there's a there's a backbone in you that 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 you can call upon. That you can survive the worst of training. Boot camp is simply uh, a preparations for uh, being being a POW. What are you going to do if you're a POW? That's the worst thing you can possibly happen to a soldier. I don't care what branch of the service you're in but what we do is we soldier for the United States. So being captured is one thing you certainly don't want to do and (laughs) being that vulnerable and having been captured, how do you manage to survive that? And he said, he reached back into the recesses of his mind to boot camp. And he says, if you can get through boot camp, you can get through this. And that's what it is. And that's what I certainly believe also. That mentality and that training up until that point in my life, I had never had any challenges like that. nor subsequent to that time. Of course, combat is a different horse of another color, but uh, anything, any challenges that I ever had in life after boot camp, I would revert back to that as well. It's a good base, a very fine base. It's uh, something you can draw strength on, and he did that, in fact, and he did it in speech. Thomas still lives in uh, he lives in uh, Hawaii right now, and from time to time we talk to each other and. We go back and we we reminisce about it, absolutely. Do you think that, that
0: same kind of strength has an impact on the incidence of PTSD among vets?
1: Yeah, I, I, PTSD, I, you know, I, one of my disabilities is PTSD as well. Uh, uh, some some folks uh, were able to really handle it, and, and some were not, and uh, and, and, I, and I can't say those who who were not able to handle it were any less prepared than I was, uh, but I, I I can't say they were wrong or they were weak or anything. It's just. Hey, that's it you know one of the things that came out of Vietnam I don't know if you're familiar with them I don't know your, your listeners but the, the, remember the old saying name rank and serve number yes if you're ever captured well that's true and it's it's kind of the code of conduct the code of conduct is drilling to me the first day in boot camp and and believe it me uh, all the time up until Vietnam however there's one major problem with the code of conduct it is not law and if anyone, anyone uh, is captured and tortured and subjected to the point where they divulge uh, even the utmost secrets, I mean you're going to scream mama. You're going to really, really, because you just can't take that. And if, if you divulge a secret, you divulge a secret. Hey, do you live? Yeah, you live. And so it's not enforceable, it, it is not law and it's it's an awful lot to demand of someone to undergo strenuous torture and etc., particularly in in Thomas case and he said once he was fired upon in his plane he, he got down and was able to move away from the wreckage he and the pilot he says he just simply didn't have the the firepower had a 38 caliber weapon and I think the pilot had one as well but when you're a 38 Compared to a long rifle, just simply no match. Hmm. Do you give up? He said, heck yeah, he just gave right up. Just had no match. Really? Plus they had some injuries, they sustained injuries when they they, they crash landed as well. But yeah. uh, it is just no match. And so uh, you won't find that anymore in the halls of the, the barracks and etc the code of conduct it's simply not law. your own your own
0: combat experience in vietnam you you also served with the marine security guard battalion at the u.s embassy in saigon in 68 and 69 yes sir indeed absolutely not nice. around the time of the tet it was it was in fact uh, the tet offensive. that had
1: to be some tense time right there it was intense absolutely so intense in fact that uh, and i don't think i'm revealing any secrets here uh that uh we, we had a uh, a grunt company on the on the peripheral and the border now the marine security guard is one of the uh, elite uh, duties you can get in the marine corps as well uh, you, all marines would like to be a uh, marine security guard but all marines don't become marine security guards it's simply uh, it's, it's a real, real tough school to get out of and get into. Marine security guards uh, guard the embassy. If you ever go to a foreign country and you go to the US embassy, you'll see Marines. That's the duty, that's their job there. Um, and they're trained, they're highly trained to do the job of protecting our embassies and the emissaries and etc. cetera. Who did that same duty in Dakar, Senegal? He has the same duty, but uh, certainly not under a, a war threat uh, as Vietnam was. Uh, doc, uh, the the uh, embassy in, in Saigon was right in the, in the heart of the battle. <laughs> Believe me, <laughs> uh, Easter Offensive and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, there was it was quite a little battle there going on. The uh, the the embassy in in Dakar, Senegal, was peaceful. I mean, really kind of a reward for having been in Vietnam again, uh, particularly at the embassy. So it was a nice duty. I enjoyed it there.
0: Well, that must have been actually kind of helpful in a way, I would think. I, I've I've learned a little about PTSD, and part of what I learned was that one of the factors that they say uh, had to do with the uh, I don't know if this was true of the Marines, but you didn't go in as a unit. You went in as an individual, and there were year-long tours of duty, and then you'd come back as an individual, and you didn't have that camaraderie about that that you would experience if you came back with your entire unit, which they said lent to PTSD as well as, ironically, those who saw PTSD as a weakness were more likely to have more difficulty with it than those who understood that part of being strong is admitting when something is is a challenge and, and doing something about it
1: yeah and I, i'd agree with that i really would uh, yeah in fact the uh, anglico was the you know, served with uh, actually it was a subunit of anglico it was in the vietnam from anglico and uh, yeah we we were uh, in place and uh Egress, ingress uh, individually. We didn't go over as a unit, except for the first time in '65, we went over as a as a very small unit. But uh, we we were not uh, it's a uh, combat re- uh, combat strength, or, or rather a battalion strength or anything like that. We simply were teams going over, teams that uh, sometimes uh, no more than 12 people really, a gunfire team of uh, FAT. FAC team, air and naval gunfire, and that was it really. So coming back uh, was uh, again, in many cases, the rotation was individual. Uh, We did not have a a a unit return or reunit reunion or a unit, uh, uh, you know, uh, let's see. A cohesion per se, I'd say. So you we'd come back and we we we'd meet new people in the unit again. So what, and then you would go into Vietnam and you were alone in many cases because uh, you were only two Americans in, say uh, a Vietnamese uh, battalion. Mm-hmm. And, and w- what was very important was that uh, uh, if the the, the foreign uh, say the vietnamese the rvn if they needed uh a supporting fire uh we could we could give it to them but if there was a foreign voice on the radio to say the uh say the artillery batteries uh, they wouldn't fire they required an american voice and and that's why we were really pretty much uh isolated in many cases from any whole unit uh, was that a detriment coming back? Uh, did I feel that at all? <sighs> Let's see. We, when we I left so, it,
0: it's a blessing for you that like some of the draftees that I know, when they came back the, uh, virtually the same week as they came back to the states, they were discharged. So suddenly from, from being in the field, there they are in Oceanside. you know and Mm -hmm. and which had to be just out out, uh, incredible what a transition so I would imagine it's been a blessing for you to carry on with your service after the fact
1: well yes and and, and I think it's cathartic to be involved in your community I always thought of that Uh, uh, in my career going and bouncing from place to place to place uh, throughout the United States and overseas there's, of course, the the military uh, community, the American community as well, in many places we would go, but uh, there was no like hometown community. Yeah, that uh, you could you could cling to, and you can be a part of, and you can uh, uh, you can vote for the mayor and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so we did have absentee voting and etcetera, but uh, we were far removed from that uh, the entire time. At least I was far removed from it. But I did exercise uh, um, absentee voting and etcetera, uh, which uh, I was kind of doubtful about. But nevertheless, I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I retired, subsequently retired from Marine Corps after thirty years, and I landed in Oceanside, I said, "Hmm, what is it I can do to get back?" And you know, I. I loved the idea of being in community, and I also had these these characteristics. I had these talents, and etc. I, I was good with people. Um, I had a bachelor's degree uh, from uh, Chapman uh, College at the time. And I finished up uh, with a a degree in uh, clinical and community psychology from Chapman College, now Chapman University. And I said, so I'd like to put all this together, you know, I'm a good teacher, I'm a good listener, in the whole shot. And so with that, I launched them to becoming involved in the community in Oceanside and um, in North San Diego County, period. Giving back.
0: You earned your master's degree after your discharge? Yes. Yeah.
1: hmm
0: So I was, because I was trying to imagine in the course of your life, I mean, I've had the pleasure of meeting your wife Wilma and I was wondering somewhere in the middle of all that you were doing, how you managed to capture the heart of this lady and start a family. (laughs) It
1: was like, how in uh, the world did you manage that? It was subsequent to my discharge, absolutely. Uh, This is something that, uh, let's see, I was married twice in the Marine Corps, when I, in my career, and uh, I had—I uh, like to say—I had three tours of Vietnam and three tours of marriage, you know. <laughs> and and what was my third wife? Uh, we met after the Marine Corps. She was a major in the Marine Corps, and uh, she had been discharged, but when I met her, and she had a child, Jessica, who was three years old at that time, and. Uh, we met and uh, the, the magic happened and we married, and then we had a son ourselves, who is, I think, 31 now.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, she is quite a lady.
1: Yeah, she she's sounds- quite the hero. Absolutely. She, I better be correct about it. She is the she
0: So was your choice of psychology as your field of study, um, was that more an outgrowth of your experience in leadership or your experience in that that quality of molding souls or whatever spirit through such things as you know your experience in boot camp and, and combat those sorts of things about what they taught you about mental strength by all means
1: I, I was I was very uh, motivated to advance my education uh, one was uh, in pursuit of uh, the next rank how is it that I get to the next rank well it's uh, they there there are military courses and things that you can do as supplemental reading work, etc. And there's uh, the formal education. Okay, And each location that uh, I, I was stationed at, I would always pursue a college course. Uh, I just wanted to be the best NCO that I possibly could be. And I said, how do you do that? Uh, you get into the minds of men. How is that? Well, it's through psychology and, and the minds of people, period, you know. You need to know your troops, and that's a r- real big secret. If you don't know your troops, you're not going to be a good leader. It's pure and simple. So how do you become a good leader, better leader, and etc.? Well, you got to know something about the human nature and certainly uh, human psychology. Mm-hmm. And that's why I pursued the psychology. I did not at the time think in terms of getting a degree. Or even working in the field of psychology, I just simply wanted what it would help me to help my troops, and yes. it was through psychology I was able to, in fact, uh, do that and do it very well. And, uh, and I, I just thought that uh, hmm, this could be exactly what I want to do when I retire from the Marine Corps. And as it turned out, that it, it was, uh, eh, yeah, it was nice, but I didn't want to do that. Um, I saw a lot, a lot of broken souls and et cetera. And so my thought was, let's let's advance this. And knowing people, you can always get a job. You can always be counseling and et cetera. And I was able to do that for a while too. But I said, well, uh, how do you make money? And that's a nice thought too. So let's uh, couple that with a business degree. And I got a business degree also in the master's. And uh, coupled with uh, a degree in psychology and a uh, degree in business, I've never been without a job subsequent to my retirement.
0: You started a, a second career in academia. Yes, I Tell indeed. us about that.
1: Well, I love teaching. In fact, uh, uh, as a Marine and senior enlisted Marine, you, you're always teaching. Uh, that's part of it, you know. And some folks teach better than others. And uh, I just thought that, hey, here's something I can do, and I can do it very well. I can instruct, I can teach. And uh, this is what I pursued. I did not go to, say, oh, wait, well, I tried to start at the, the, let's see, middle school. And I said, whoa, I don't want to be teaching kids. I said, nice, but no thanks. I, I think I'll take a bow out of this one. But I wanted people who knew the value of education and wanted to get there. And that was pretty much uh, aligned with uh, the young Marines that I was uh, teaching and et cetera and uh, guiding uh, from their their time of discharge and through a program called uh, Project Transition. I taught that for a long time as as an individual contractor to the base. Transition, where you teach Marines who are within a 90-day period of exiting the Marine Corps how to transition and, and take uh, their skills and, and transfer them into a civilian life and what would be the expectations once you became a civilian. And so it doesn't come to you as a shock you don't know how to do things as a civilian. And believe you me, uh, once you, you, you're taught to do what I say do and etc and you don't have the uh the wherewithal to think for yourself which is required of you once you get out of it, into the what I call the USS outside uh, you got to be able to advance yourself and know how to get there and etc. you know you got to know how to write a check and I think there's money in there because you got blank checks in your checkbook. <laughs> Yeah, and so living skills, believe you or me or not, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the the Marine, the uh, the individual in Marine Corps is taught to advance and do what I say, what I say as fast as you can, and without say, asking why. Uh, that's not the case of becoming a civilian. You have to ask why. You have to know how to do it. You have to know how to make a living. You have to uh, be able to uh, uh, manage your money. You have to be able to manage people, not as Marines who, will blindly do what you say, but hey, how is it that I can get this person to do what I need to get done so we can have a better time at this? Mm. That's what you have to be able to do. And once you transition, or you don't get any training on how to make that transition, it's going to be tough and you're going to have problems, absolutely.
0: Wow. Well, I think we'd probably need a second episode, speaking of your, your desire to give back to the community, but we'd need a second episode to cover the amazing list of community service work you've done and the honors you've received. Mm-hmm. And I would like to focus on just a few, if I may.
1: Go right ahead.
0: You served four times as the president of the African-American Advisory Board for Cal State University San Marcos. You were the three-time president, four-time vice president of North San Diego County NAACP. You also served two years as advisor to the Black Student Union at MiraCosta College. So your your passion for the work is obvious. But could you put to words could you describe what fuels the
1: passion itself? Well anyone at a disadvantage uh get, gets my vote and not only at a disadvantage but has the, the temerity and the, the the wherewithal to want to advance and, and be successful in life, uh, I'm at your side. I'll I'll be there to help you. If you don't know, and if I see that you're, you're in an environment uh, that uh, is not productive and is counterproductive to a quality way of life, then I'm concerned about that. Certainly minorities, many black and browns and yellows and et cetera, are at a disadvantage. And they have been from the beginning since 1619, really, uh, a total disadvantage. But how do you manage to more than eke out a a life, but to fare well in spite of the opposition? That's what I was really concerned about. And that's what I'm saying. When things are lopsided and not in your favor, how do you manage to get back on track? How do you manage to get on track period never having been on track? That's mm-hmm. what drives me. I'm always glad to share my experiences with anyone. I'm also very glad to share that uh, you need to become educated. That's the first thing. Some of the, American, the wrongs in America today can, and I firmly believe this, can be changed through education. Everyone, everyone, need a college education just pure and simple and i don't i would i would even advocate and i certainly would say that the government can indeed do that very easily we got the money everyone should be educated college-wise, or to a point where he or she can make a living without having to depend on a dole from the government so given what
0: you've done in the terms of supporting and counseling and guiding what would you as the man you are today say to 18 year old reg owens if you could see him if you could go back and tell him anything what would you tell him
1: probably tell him don't get married twice But uh, uh, I, I think that uh, even that that uh, those uh, well, it wasn't pleasant in many cases. But even that uh, those excursions uh, uh, helped to make me the person that I am today. Really, yeah. Uh, I, w- I would look at uh, hopefully being uh, encouraged by folks like me uh, when I was eighteen. Uh, the, the me now. Yes. I wish I'd have ran into me when I was 18. That's what I wish. And, and were there folks around to, to be that model at that time? Well, I didn't get that. If it was there, I didn't get it, I mean, uh, as I told you before, the, the, the advancement of education came from self beyond high school, but I knew it was important to get an education a formal education. And so I think I would have probably exited the Marine Corps, got a degree, and then came back. Mm -hmm. That would be my thought.
0: Have your children expressed interest in talking about your military experience? Do my
1: children talk to me?
0: Yeah, in other words, like my mom was a Navy nurse. She was an officer and a prisoner of war in the Philippines in World War II. Mm But wow. she almost never talked to us, her children, about her experiences, other than just you know touch, barely scratching the surface of it. But in her years later, she began to write about it a little bit, and two other people have written books that one of which is about her, and it's been an amazing experience for we, her children, to find out what she went through. It, for me personally, it's given me just a huge insight into what made her the woman she was, the woman that I knew growing up. And it also gave me a sense of legacy and a sense of pride to be her son. Uh, so I was kind of wondering if you've had those kinds of conversations with your children.
1: No, I, I've not said and uh, digressed or talked at length. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this talk is probably the most i ever done, really. Uh, I am, a, let me just put it this way, I know they know my passion and that uh, right now I'm the president of an organization called the Anglican Association and I've headed that up for a number of years and it's uh, former uh, Marines who were in naval gunfire, Anglico and uh, we meet every two years and uh, they know my passion for that Uh, those are the guys i can really talk to Uh, bill thomas was one of the guys in fact i took over the presidency from bill thomas wow and and so uh we're planning for the reunion in october this year in san diego and so it's it's always good to come back and 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 talk to the the guys who were that's a, a partner in the, the the episode of the marine corps that we share together Hmm.
0: well this interview is going to be our april episode which seems pretty appropriate because if i've got it right your birthday is in april is it not seven april oh well i want to wish you a happy birthday right here right now
1: well, thank you so much
0: yeah well, it's really been one of the great honors and pleasures I've had in a long, long time to spend this time with you. And I wanna thank you for your time. I wanna thank you for your sacrifices. I wanna thank you for your accomplishments and service to our country and the community. And and even though it's unintentional, I wanna thank you for letting us celebrate your life in this, the month of your birth. Thank Absolutely. you so much, Reg.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and time to share. Absolutely.
0: There are words that lose a measure of their significance when they're overused. One such word is hero. In my experience, people I see as heroes seldom acknowledge themselves as heroes. Reg Owens is a hero to me. This is not limited to his valor in combat, but to the exemplary life he's led and continues to lead. He didn't choose life's easy path, but instead took on an arduous journey that he would certainly speak of as just doing his job. But the thing is, he consciously chose and accepted that path every day. Even in retirement, he gives more of himself to his community's youth, to the cause of social justice, and to his fellow veterans. That's heroism in my book. If you enjoyed this episode of unspoken unsung please subscribe rate and review our podcast wherever you find the podcasts you enjoy you'll find us on apple podcasts on stitcher and our home website conversaire.net. that's c-o-n-v-e-r-s-a-y-e-r.net Martin Danner engineered the recording. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, Carlsbad, California. Post-production engineer was Ken Langan. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner.